Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath it. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu. And what I'd like to do, first of all, is thank our sponsor. Yes, our sponsor this time round is Uncle Farty's Suppository Candy. They are the number one name in rectally inserted treats, meaning that they can guarantee zero tooth decay from any of their products and also ensuring that any flatulence is beautifully scented with cinnamon. So remember, Uncle Farties, from wherever you buy your suppository candy. Cinnamon flatulence is not guaranteed. Remove candy from packaging before insertion. The Dr. Farty Corporation accepts no responsibility for misuse of suppository candy. Yes, this time round on the podcast, we are talking about sponsorship. It is a fascinating topic that's going to take us back more than 2,000 years. And yet, obviously, we live in a world where... Everything is sponsored. Sponsorship is a hot political, ethical, and obviously financial topic of today. More so, I'm going to say, than at any other point in the history of sponsorship. It's a fascinating conversation. It might even change your mind about sponsorship. We're going to be talking about what it's like today, but we're also going to be talking about where it was in the past. Normally, I talk about the pop culture and then bring it back to history. I figured this time around, I'm going to show you the evolution of the thing, in this case, sponsorship, up to today, so you can see how we're kind of doing it wrong in the modern world compared to where it was in the past. What we've got is the first time we get any evidence of sponsorship is round about 500 BC, the height of the Hellenic period in ancient Greece, where what you get is taxes on the rich that pay for community projects, things like an amphitheater or something like that. And this went on for quite a long time, but the very first named sponsorship comes from 330 BC, where a rich gentleman called Leonidas. This is Sparta! Not that one. He's been dead for 150 years, but what this one did is he paid for a large communal hall, in essence, somewhere where various group activities for the population would be held, and it had his name over the door. So we now know 
who's the sponsor, which is, if you like, the whole point of sponsorship in essence. So this is going on before something like Spartacus was having an uprising, centuries before Spartacus was having an uprising against the Romans, for example. I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! I'm Brad and so's my wife! That's how old this concept is. Now, I mentioned Spartacus, and that neatly leads us into the Romans, as opposed to the Greeks, and obviously gladiators. If you don't know, basically gladiatorial games have been a cornerstone of the Roman civilization for a very long time. They didn't start as a big event in front of huge crowds in a Colosseum. Actually, they started at Roman funerals where two slaves would, in essence, fight to death for the, the master. That's where it started. It led to lots of people turning up at the funerals, and clearly somebody, we don't know who, thought, hmm, I could probably charge people to watch this, and you get the evolution of the gladiatorial system into suddenly, you know, slaves going to basically gladiatorial schools, being trained up, bigger and bigger amphitheaters and coliseums and so on and so forth. All these sorts of areas were created so that people could watch these great events, these great spectacles. And so you get to somebody like Julius Caesar, for example. So we're, we're now into the first century BC, where when his daughter sadly died, he held a series of gladiatorial games to commemorate her. So partly going back to the funerary side of things, but also it was, in essence, a sign of his power. And from Caesar onwards, it's kind of expected of the emperors, for example, when they've had a good time, or indeed if they're facing political pressure, they start putting their names on bigger and grander spectacles for the population, particularly of Rome, to see. This is where we get the famous line, bread and circuses. In other words, if things are going wrong, we need to distract the population with something and give them some food give them some entertainment, and they won't worry about the fact that they lost a bit of their liberties. That is as true now as it was 2,000 years ago. Very sad to say that fact. But there you go. There's an example of sponsorship going into the realms of politics. And, okay, putting aside the ancient Greek side of things, when it comes to gladiators and any kind of games, you're dealing with death in some form or another. Animal cruelty is probably the least of the crimes that are going on here, although we can put that one in as well. But in a big gladiatorial series of games, which would last for days, weeks sometimes, then hundreds of people will be dead by the end of that period. And it's done to the roar of the crowds and, and applause. Hailing from Germania, is the Saxon who's always axing. Wolfus Ray! And it makes you more popular. That is something deeply disturbing to think about when it comes to human beings. This idea of the rich giving back to the community, we know where it starts from. It's, it's the, obviously it's the Mediterranean civilizations, but it's not the only place that does it when we go longer term. When we look further out, we get to see all kinds of emperors and kings and potentates from around the globe, basically when they want to make a big deal, they will create something that the public can go and see. You know, what's the point? If you like, 
and we'll come on to the Renaissance paintings in a moment, but the Mona Lisa is a breathtaking piece of art from, I'm going to say, one of the greatest artists that ever lived. Possibly the greatest? Mm -hmm. Maybe we have a debate about that. But anyway, you know, Leonardo da Vinci is up there, okay? But the thing is, no matter how awesome, and it is awesome, the Mona Lisa is, how many people ever saw it? You know, it's a pretty small painting, and it would have hung in probably the private quarters of the French king. And so, yeah, that's not going to influence people in Germany, in the Holy Roman Empire, for example, or even the people of Paris. They, they wouldn't have seen it. So actually what most of these things really were about is saying, look, have a good time on me. Have a belly full of food. Have a, a bladder full of, <laughs> of booze on me. But don't forget it's me that's doing it. Yes, me. So you can't vote for me because I'm in charge. But people have said some pretty nasty things about me recently. But you can see that, well, can I be all that bad if I'm giving you a free chicken dinner and some entertainment? Yeah, come on, you know you want me to run your country and not rebel against me. That is the basic message of all this stuff. So you you get this in all kinds of of situations and it's and it becomes just common practice over the centuries. We also start getting in the same area as sponsors. You know, a sponsor is somebody if you want a definition, somebody is paying for something, usually a form of art. But you also get patrons as well. We have the the term today patrons of the arts, which tends to mean rich people who are putting money into various artistic causes. However, you also have the term, don't patronize me. Oh, that's good. You don't have to patronize me. Ah! Okay. And that's very negative in the modern world. But if you go back, let's say a thousand years, you would want a patron. You would want a rich person to patronize you. Because what that literally means is somebody giving you their time and resources so that you can do what you want. Now, nowadays it tends to mean, I already know what I'm doing. Get out of my way. Why are you telling me what to do when I already know how to do it? That's why it's negative. And that would be the same in any era. That would be just annoying. But that's not what it really meant a thousand years ago. It was a case of, okay, I don't know how to paint. You go and do the paintings. Or, you know, in the case of something like, I mean, it's not exactly sponsorship, but throughout the Middle Ages, you had until you got the Protestant Reformation, you have the Catholic Church charging for things like papal indulgences and basically give us a little bit of money and we'll have monks, priests, etc. pray on your behalf. Basically, you seem to get what you pay for. They run all the way from this one, which is a pardon for talking with your mouth full, signed by an apprentice curate in Tewkesbury. How much is that? Two pebbles. Uh, all the way up to this one, which is a pardon for anything whatsoever, including murder, adultery, or dismemberment of a close friend or relative. <laughs> Who's that signed by? Uh, both popes. <laughs> There's all kinds of things wrong with that, but it means that really, in essence, when you, you know, how could they possibly afford this massive cathedral or this extremely elaborate monastery? And the answer is really in the Middle Ages, something like a church or cathedral was almost like a factory of prayers. They're constantly getting money in. And what are they producing? They're producing faith, cleaning your soul, things like that, which you can see why eventually you get someone like Martin Luther going, I'm not entirely sure that works against what is what the Bible's saying. The point is, people are constantly giving money, and you get these sort of types of sponsorship. I know this is a very 
weird way to put it, but obviously if I'd given my local parish church a huge amount of money that allowed it to, I don't know, rebuild the clock tower or something like that, then when I die, I want prime position. Thank you very much. Don't put me in the corner of the churchyard where basically the, the dogs go to urinate or something like that. That's, I haven't paid for that. No, the closer you are to the, you know, the core, the center of the church, where if you like, it's in theory, it's most holy. That's where people, the most important people, the people who've given the most money to the local community. So you can almost see people's level of importance in terms of where they are located in a church. It's slightly different if you go to a major institution like, let's say, Westminster Abbey. It's been around for so long that you might have been really important in, let's say, 1800. But by then, some of the key locations will have you know, been used up for centuries. So, you know, sometimes they have entire areas, entire chapels being built for a certain king, queen, general, whatever. But the more fuss, the more ornate the thing is inside that religious building, now this only applies to Christianity, Islam, it's all about simplicity and certainly no images of the dead or anything like that. But you get this, you know, the, these sort of very elaborate look at me kind of tombs and monuments inside something like St. Paul's Cathedral or wherever. You get the idea that insert name of cathedral that you want, and it makes you in the modern world go and have a look at it. So, you know, that's their own kind of sponsor. You know, 500 years later, look at the effort that I put into this place in the past. There is the famous thing in St. Paul's, Chris, Sir Christopher Wren is buried there. And it says on his tomb, if you're looking for my monument, look around you, which is just a very cool way of sort of saying to people, I built this. Awesome. Or awesome. Or you could argue it's passive aggressive. I don't know. I'm going for awesome. So you get all these different types of sponsors in the religious world, in the entertainment world. I'm also going to talk about the sports world, because, of course, this is something where I'm going to obviously bring up when we talk about the modern world. But it's not modern. Yes, we all know about gladiators, but the thing that the Romans into like the Byzantine Eastern Roman Empire era, which was even more popular than gladiatorial games, was chariot racing. Charioteers frequently became household names, and there was none greater than the second century chari charioteer Gaius Apulius Diocles, who won 1,462 out of his 4,257 races over a two-decade career. And this is the important bit. He holds the title for the best rewarded sports person ever. During his career, he won about 36 million sesterces, which in today's money is about 10 billion pounds. So in US dollars, that's about 13 billion dollars. I mean, that is an insane amount of money. We were impressed by someone like Michael Jordan being worth more than a billion. But Michael Jordan, quite frankly, you could buy 10 Michael Jordans for one Gaius Apulius Diocles. What's interesting is, you know, this is not a rich guy. We know that he came from a place called Lusitania, which is now modern day Portugal and southwest Spain. 
he's thought to have been illiterate throughout his entire career. He comes from a poor family and he actually took a gamble by changing teams. Just as today, people are incredibly loyal to their, let's say, football team. In the past, with this chariot racing, you had teams. They weren't called things like Aston Villa or, I don't know, the Pittsburgh Steelers or whatever. Instead, they were just simply colours. So the greens, the whites, the reds, etc. And generally, people did not change the colour of team because people really took this passionately. More on that in a moment. So in his time, he did actually race for the whites, the greens and the reds. But overall, he was more successful when he was with the reds. And he retired alive, staggeringly wealthy at the age of 42. The other thing, of course, because nobody's, well, occasionally people did die in chariot races, but the point was racing, not death. So it actually survived into the Christian era. You've got later Christian emperors trying to ban gladiatorial combat because, yes, not really turning the other cheek, is it? Once we get to Byzantium, the Byzantine Empire in, in later antiquity, chariot races were still really, really popular. But also by this time, the different colored teams started to be associated with different political expression. And this became a focus for social and political issues. Supporters were a cross between political parties and street gangs by this time. Everything came to a head in the very famous Nika riots. This is in 532 AD. This is after the Western Roman Empire's collapse, but still in the East, for all speaking Latin, you know, the capital's Constantinople. And these were the most violent riots Constantinople had ever seen, resulting in the deaths of maybe a thousand people and the destruction of nearly half the city's housing. So if you talk about football hooliganism in, let's say, the 1980s, that is, quite frankly, peanuts compared to what was going on in chariot racing in late antiquity sort of Roman Empire. So it was after those riots they started to calm down the chariot racing and also try and disassociate it from both street gangs and politics. But that is literally centuries after we have somebody earning about 10 billion pounds in their entire sporting career. So that story, apart from obviously the huge rioty stuff, even even then there's there's echoes into the modern world. But yeah, sort of like extremely loyal fans, extremely rich, almost celebrity status sports people. That might have been happening nearly 2000 years ago, but it's very, very common today how we treat some of these sports personalities as if they're more than human, when of course they're obviously not. So as I've said, you know, you get into the medieval era where you have things like churches being built by certain people and, you know, they get to be buried in all the good places. And then we come to the Renaissance, where, I, you know, I'm going to briefly talk about the Renaissance painters. And obviously, I've got to also talk about Shakespeare. And this is where we start drawing the dotted line into the modern world. I will also talk a little bit about how sponsorship evolved into advertising as well, because that's a conversation, although I'm not doing a whole thing on advertising this time around. So with that in mind, yes, if you've got somebody like Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, or indeed William Shakespeare, these are undeniably some of the greatest artists in their fields in the whole of history on planet Earth. They are amazing. There's no argument about that. But as people go on and on, particularly with Shakespeare talking about how it's showing Tudor bias, there is a reason for that. Well, there's actually two reasons. The first and most obvious reason is you don't want to get into trouble with the authorities. So you 
say what the authorities want you to say. Because in those days, if you kept causing trouble, you might have your head cut off. Nowadays, I guess the worst that would happen is you'd be in prison and fined. Even that would be staggeringly rare, particularly in somewhere like America, where freedom of speech is very much enshrined in the Constitution. So, yeah. That's number one. But number two is you write what people want. You know, it's not just about staying out of trouble, but you want to be popular. You actually want people to go and see your stuff. This is why I'm going to sort of like bring in my wife a little bit. So she did a degree in drama. And to this day, she deals with fundraising, things like sponsorship in the world of theatre. But what amused me is years ago, we went through some of her notes from university and there was this this great sort of organogram type thing this sort of like this pictorial reference within the middle it was the word theater and the title at the top was what is theater and she'd written in things like challenging innovative subversive and we went round it and, and he's like i oh, know okay yeah i get that i get that and then i sort of like pulled back a bit and went it doesn't say entertaining anywhere. And she sort of scoured it and, and then she, she burst out laughing and went, yeah, well, I mean, I was, at, I was at university then. And if you like that, that's the thing. In modern theatre, just like with Shakespeare, you're faced with two issues here. You can do something that's sort of groundbreaking and subversive and innovative and maybe four people will go and see it. Or you keep running Les Miserables, which is an amazing play and, and theatrical experience, absolutely. Or Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. You know, you have to go for two nights in a row and they're really long as well. And I loved them. They were amazing, exceptional. So, yes, occasionally you get something that's sort of subversive and innovative, like Hamilton. I probably should be back, but dad, I'm amazed and astonished. The problem is I got a lot of brains, but no polish. Which is also a big hit. But by and large, the general population, they know what they like and they like what they know. So in that case, give them another version of West Side Story or South Pacific or Cats, not the movie. And yeah, people will come and you will make money. And then there's the argument of the only thing on in the West End is musicals or Shakespeare. And they're kind of right. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So, you know, this is the thing. There was one play that she had to work on, which I believe was called Two Poor Polish-Speaking Romanians. I am pretty sure that's the name of it. They were Polish-speaking something other country. I think it was Romanians. But yeah, as I say that name, first of all, not very catchy. Secondly, do you want to go and see it? Now, it got amazing reviews, but it sounds like hard work, doesn't it? <laughs> Whereas something like Cabaret, that sounds like fun. And also there's an Oscar-winning movie associated with it. And yes, I will, I will go and see that. If you can get tickets, it's really, really expensive and very hard to get. That's the problem you face. So with somebody like Shakespeare, is he didn't live in a democracy. He's doing it for very rich aristocrats. You know, the people that tend to get a bad reputation, sort of like the kind of oligarchs, the one percenters, it's all the sorts of people that nowadays in social media and TV and movies get very, very bad reputations, probably for very good reasons, although I will always say this, money isn't in and of itself evil. So just because someone's rich doesn't automatically make them evil. However, you want to look at what they do rather than what they say. And the value of your bank account is not the same thing as the value of you. But yeah, I, I don't like it. it. It all gets a bit too socialist for me when people just sort of start saying, ah, you know, there's no such thing as a good rich person or all big business is evil. It's like, really? And we'll come on to that in a bit. So if Shakespeare was working today... I'm not entirely sure anybody would go to his plays because they're new. They're not being sort of shown for 500 years. And also there are people be going, hmm, they're a bit fascist. You know, they're all about the one percenters. It's all about kings and queens and princesses and things like that. Yeah, he had to make a judgment, which in the modern world kind of doesn't pass muster, but made complete sense in his era. And, and nobody has ever overtly criticized him for, well, they've said that he's played fast and loose with the history, but nobody sort of said, well, he shouldn't have taken money from these rich people, because what else was he going to do in the 15-1600s, eh? And it's exactly the same thing for Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo. If they weren't working for the papacy, which I'd already pointed out was earning a huge amount of money for basically, give us cash, we will pray for your sins, which does feel wrong. And obviously the Catholic Church over the centuries has done a number of things that have got it into trouble and in retrospect has had to apologize for. And I'm going to be as nice as I can in these situations. So yeah, again, if in the modern world, a football team was, let's say, sponsored by the Vatican, that would cause so much outrage that uh, they, the deal wouldn't go through. It would collapse in one form or another. They're not taking money from like, organic farmers, they're taking money from all the people who are the problem of society, basically. And if they're not working for the papacy, they're basically working for a local despot. You know, we, we might talk about the Medicis of Florence as if they are amazing patrons of the arts, because they are, but they were also power-hungry, money-hungry, involved in political assassinations, warmongers, 
they would probably be on an FBI wanted list if they existed today. And yet, they gave money to these staggeringly talented artists and basically said, do what you want with this cash. And we have sublime art that has lasted for centuries and is just as impressive today in the digital age as it was 500 years ago. That's how good it is. But let's not make any mistake about where this money's come from. I did an episode ages ago called Cancelling Shakespeare, where I actually talked about Caravaggio and how he's an artist who was taking money, just like Da Vinci and Michelangelo, from these people. But also on top of that, he murdered some people, and yet we show the stuff, oh, we murdered one person. We show off his art as if it's fine. It's like, well, you know, he was a murderer who actually absconded from the scene of the crime. So it gets dirty and dirtier the more you dig into it. And yet we don't like digging into it. We like to sort of step back and go, ooh, isn't it amazing? Isn't it lovely? Isn't it great? And so this sponsorship and patronage, it still lasts today in a different form, but it lasted particularly with artists into the 19th century. You've got all these people who are looking around for basically a rich person to pay them to do what they love. And they kind of turn a blind eye to where the rich person's getting their money. This is why, you know, you get a lot of these collections sort of associated with slavery, because slave owners, people earning money from the transatlantic slave trade, have paid architects to build really impressive things. It's like, well, that was made off the back of human misery. But do we tear it down? Do we put it into context? I don't know. I don't have an easy answer for you there, but I'm not a fan of erasing history just because it's uncomfortable. Or seeing things through the lens of one thing and one thing only, because life's complicated, so therefore so is history. So just sort of saying, this good, that bad, is really unhelpful. With that in mind, we're obviously heading into the more modern age. Once we're into the 19th century, with vastly improving literacy rates and also vastly improving printing presses, although they've been around for centuries, we're now getting the rise of things like newspapers and, and sort of like mass production of books and things like that. And so you get someone like Charles Dickens. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Or if Charles Dickens had been writing at the time of Shakespeare, he might have written very, very differently. But because he was able to serialise his books in newspapers, he could raise people's conscious and awareness to things like the poverty in industrialised Britain. And it struck a chord with the common man because it wasn't Queen Victoria who was paying for Charles Dickens' stuff. It was you know, the common people in the streets who were paying for their, their one penny for the newspaper and finding out what happens next in the Pickwick Papers or whatever's sort of being serialised at the moment in time. So now we get into the world of like advertising and sponsorship of today. And in essence, advertising, particularly in TV land, is very much inter integrated with sponsorship and allows, again, these artists to go bigger, to do exactly what they want. So, for example, in America in the 1950s, you get the very first TV advert. Adverts have evolved a lot since then. Basically, it's somebody announcing that it's the time sponsored by, insert name of the watchmaker, that's it. The very first advert on British TV, on commercial TV, ITV in Britain, because the BBC stations have no commercial breaks, was actually for a toothpaste. And quite famously, if you're in the world of advertising, it was a picture, it was a, an image of, it was a completely static image of toothpaste and a toothbrush frozen in a block of ice next to a stream and the river's moving. That's the only movement you get in, in it. 
It's fresh as ice. It's Gibbs SR toothpaste. And that's it in terms of the adverts. So yes, it's safe to say that adverts have got more and more involved. But as I've mentioned on things like the Boardwalk Empire episode, yes, look, guys, don't know if you've just stumbled onto this podcast, but we do podcasts on all kinds of things. You know, it could be something like Warhammer. I've occasionally, because I'm, I, I like playing it and painting the stuff, so probably every couple of months is a Warhammer episode. But hey, you know, I've done stuff on ABBA. I've already mentioned sort of like Boardwalk Empire and another one about sort of like cancelling Shakespeare. So, you know, it's, it's all about starting with something that you think you know and then showing oh, there's a lot of history behind this. And I hope you find it really interesting. I certainly find it interesting doing these. Full disclosure, I actually started my career straight out of university in the media world, which is why I know stuff about advertising. But what you get nowadays is in the UK on Sky TV, you have something called Sky Atlantic, and that's basically HBO in the UK. And all their dramas are sponsored by Volvo. And that's really clever because what Volvo knows, like we all do, is we don't want to watch adverts and so we just fast forward through them. And nowadays everything you're sort of like sticking onto your hard disk, you call it whatever you want in your own country, but we've all got these smart TVs with disk drives in them basically so we can actually pause live TV or indeed record all the episodes of insert name of TV series. So for example, at the moment I'm catching up on billions and so what you do is you get a bit of billions and then it cuts to a little insert of like sponsored by Volvo. And then you get all the other adverts for toothpaste, cars, whatever, Purcell, etc. And then it goes back to another little ident of sponsored by Volvo. And then we go back into the TV show. So what does everybody actually do? As soon as it sort of fades to the Volvo bit, we all start fast forwarding. And then as soon as we catch the next bit of Volvo, or sometimes we go past it a little bit because our reaction times aren't that great. In other words, the Volvo being at the beginning and end of the commercial break is almost like the bridge between the two points. And therefore we're looking for those idents. And I am now able to tell you who sponsors all the drama on Sky Atlantic. So well done Volvo on that, although I don't actually own a Volvo. The advertising agencies are also aware that you are fast forwarding through all the other adverts that they spend a lot of time and money creating. So... And this is genius. They will do the same thing. They'll fast forward their adverts times 30 and make sure that even if you are whipping through it at that speed, there will still be hero shots. In other words, shots of that specific brand. So you are aware that you're going past an advert for Purcell or Cadbury's or whatever it may be. So that's how it works on old fashioned TV. But you do get on things like podcasts or indeed things like videos on YouTube where they actually are obliged to say, they're legally obliged to say, you know, this has an advertisement section or something like that. And they will then go into it and, and talk about it. If they're clever, they'll do it kind of in the middle of the video. Because let's face it, we either fast forward through the beginning or we cut out the end as soon as the person jumps on, unless they're particularly entertaining. So yeah, look, we all got to earn. So I have absolutely get why these sponsors are out there. For, for people who start complaining about advertising on YouTube or on podcasts, I say, well, how much are you paying for it? Because if this other person is sort of like doing it seriously, well, they need some money for their time. Yeah, this is why I ask people to subscribe. It would be lovely if this wasn't just a net loss of time, energy, and, you know, the, the recording equipment I bought years ago, but it cost me money and it's pretty good equipment. So yeah, I never begrudge people doing some commerciality in their stuff because sadly, mortgages, food, travel, you can't pay it in podcasts. You have to pay them money. So you have at it. But we now come to, this is all culminating into the ethical side 
of sponsorship because I went, I think it was in 2020, can't swear to this, you know, because of the pandemic, time is a flat circle, but there was an exhibition on Nero in the British Museum and it had BP as the sponsor and BP had the smallest logo I've ever seen as a sponsor ever and I looked into it and basically there is so much outrage at BP being a, a petroleum company and contributing to the greenhouse gases and the carbon footprint of planet Earth. All of these things are true, and I, I hear you on that. So that it was like, British Museum, why are you taking the money from this polluter? And so this was the last time the British Museum was going to do that. But this is the problem, because any big organization will have something bad in its closet. You know, Volkswagen cars which was started by the Nazi party. Or there are a number of banking institutions which have been around for centuries, which means at some point they've sort of supplemented something like a slaver or helped with like colonialization of an area. Banks' jobs are to make money. And if you can make money out of the thing, that's what you do. And maybe today they have a very different ethical opinion of these things. So therefore criticizing them about what they were doing 200 years ago, which was neither illegal nor seen as socially unacceptable, seems to me a bit odd. But the problem now comes, and, I, and this is why I'm using the British Museum, is the British Museum is free to go into. You want to talk about podcasts? Try running a huge museum. It costs a lot of money. And they only make so much money from the pencils people occasionally buy in the shop. So they need money when they're going to be putting on a major exhibition. And something like the Carbon Neutral Gender Fluid Vegan Association may be the most ethically satisfying one around in the 21st century, but they don't make any money. They don't have the £200,000 to give to the British Museum to do something on Nero and explaining how he's kind of misunderstood. It was a really interesting exhibition. And that's the problem. The more ethical, the more worthy the organization is, the less money they have for these things. So you end up having to deal with companies which, yeah, maybe they're not the best. But if you're going to criticize this, then stop reading Shakespeare. Don't dare look at anything that Michelangelo's created, etc., etc. Either you accept that these companies are trying to improve their image with this art, like they've been doing for two and a half thousand years, or you're going to have to start seeing theatres getting boarded up, museums shutting down or maybe only working on the weekend, or suddenly having to charge for the knowledge that they were trying to give to everybody for free. It's complicated. I don't have an easy solution for you, but don't just automatically condemn, oh my God, they're sponsored by a tuna company that isn't dolphin friendly. Okay, that's bad. Okay, but maybe that's the only sponsor that they could get at the moment. And do you know what? After a pandemic, after the biggest recession in global history, with war going on in Ukraine at the moment, there are a lot of companies that don't feel like they've got a spare. And we are talking about hundreds of thousands of pounds for these key sponsorships, which keep the lights on in these organizations. I know that's what my wife does. So it's like you can sit there being as right as you want to be, but there are implications to that. And... Okay, it's a crying shame that the, you know, the vegan carbon neutral gender fluid organization doesn't have millions and millions of pounds. And maybe that says something about how wrong society is. But this podcast isn't going to change it. And you refusing to go to a theater play is not going to change it either. That's a much bigger conversation to have. But yeah, it's interesting. It isn't something new and it is still an ongoing conversation. 
I would love to get your thoughts on this. I'm at Jem Daduccio on Twitter. Tell me your thoughts. Do you think I'm being too easygoing on these organisations or do you think I've got a point here? You know, what would be your solution? Love to get your thoughts on that. That's it for this time. And as always, hopefully speak to you soon. Look, as much as I would like to pretend that Uncle Farty's Suppository Candy is indeed our sponsor, the reality is we don't have one, but I do want to do a special shout out to another podcast, John Bleasdale's Writers on Film. What this is, is people who've actually written books about movies. It's a really deep dive on lots of different directors, actors, genres of, of films. And if you're a real cinephile, you'll love it. It's far more in-depth than just like, here's the latest review of the latest Spider-Man movie. It's a like an hour-long conversation about sometimes 50-year-old films. I really love it. It's, it you know, it's growing, but it, it perhaps doesn't get as much love as it should do. So Writers on Film by John Bleasdale. Please do check it out if you do like films. Thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.